0: Paul, a bond servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Concerning his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Through Him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for His name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of His Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request, if by some means now at last I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift, so that you may be established that is, that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith both of you and me. Now, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often planned to come to you, but was hindered until now, that I might have some fruit among you also, just as among the other Gentiles. I am a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to unwise. So, as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the Gospel to you who are in Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the Gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, as we stand or sit here this evening and this moment in human history underneath the sovereign and providential direction of our God, if we reflect for a moment upon the past year and a half, we have to admit it's been a rather lengthy and interesting road that has led our paths together. Uh, There have been various circumstances that have arisen, many of them unforeseen, uh, that would fit rather well with what the Apostle Paul wrote to the Romans to say, I was hindered until now to come to you, even though there was a desire to be in your midst and to preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And having arrived, you might say, I can testify, on my own account and also on that of my wife and family, that we are glad to be here. We are humbled to be here in your midst. We have received an outpouring of warm love and of Christian fellowship in the communion of the saints that has often encouraged us as we share life within the Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ together. So having arrived, we can honestly testify that we are thankful And we are excited to be here. But I do believe it is beneficial. Both from from my perspective as a Gospel minister, but also from your perspective as the people of God, as a congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, to, to ask and to clearly identify the answer to the question, why are we here? Why are we here? Now, a variety of answers might be offered you might say, well, we are here because of the warm hospitality of the saints at Covenant Reformed Church in Pella, Iowa. And certainly, it is true that you have displayed a warm hospitality. You might also say, well, well, He is here because of a cultural affinity. He, he, he loves the Midwestern culture. He, he loves the small town atmosphere. And, and, and that also is true. I do love Those things. You might say, well, he is here because of the ethnic similarity that we share. All of those things are true, but I would present to you, congregation, tonight that that is not why we are here. And I do believe it's very important for me, myself, to understand that those things are not why we are here, and also for you as a congregation to understand that those things as wonderful as they are, are not why we are here. And so, as we begin our ministry here amongst you, we we borrow, you might say, Paul's purpose statement as he near the mature years of his earthly ministry, as as he writes to the saints in Rome, as he as he writes to this church. In his plan was, as far as we can tell, to to move the center of his missionary endeavors to the city of Rome so that he could bring the Gospel to Rome, but also to even lands beyond Rome. And so he writes to the church in Rome. And he says this wonderful purpose statement that we find in verse 15. I, as much as am in me, am ready to preach the Gospel to you also in Rome. And so we use the words of this text with the theme of ready to preach. Uh, We consider that theme together tonight with three points. First of all, we'll notice the instruments in preaching the Gospel. And then secondly, the content of preaching the Gospel. And then thirdly, the power of preaching the Gospel. So the Apostle Paul, he says to the Roman church that he is ready to preach. And we also, not to exalt ourselves, to humbly lay ourselves open before You as a congregation. Uh, we, we borrow these words and say, by God's grace, by God's enabling grace, we are here and we are ready to preach. We'll notice the instruments, the content, and the power. First of all, then the instruments in preaching the Gospel. Uh, just imagine for a moment, boys and girls, our God is able to do anything that He wants to do. Now, there are some things, of course, that He cannot do. He cannot lie. He cannot sin. But anything that is not contrary to His holy nature, and we call this the omnipotence of our God, He has all power. So if He wanted to, boys and girls, He could have just thundered from the heavens the Gospel in an audible voice. Either... Uh, continually or or perhaps at set times. And, and so yesterday afternoon, it would have been right at 12 o'clock. We were in downtown Pella. Uh, and what I assume are the tornado sirens went off. And everyone who was in Pella heard it. God could have, reverently speaking, He could have chose to proclaim the Gospel that way. That at the set time, maybe at Saturday at noon, uh, there would be uh, just this message that would be proclaimed from the heavens. But He didn't. Now with the exception of a few notable occasions, God could also have sent angelic messengers. And again, we speak with utmost reverence, but He could have had angels appear periodically or continually with the message of the Gospel. Uh, But here again, with the exception of a few occasions, that's not how God chose to bring the Gospel to fallen men and women. Rather, He chose human instruments. He chose men. And that's why Paul says in verse 15 uh, that I am ready to preach. And in the previous context, he has identified uh, what we in our subpoints uh, point out as an appointed instrument and a prepared instrument. The Apostle Paul says, and certainly there is a distinction that always ought to be remembered between gospel ministers today and apostles. We are not apostles. The apostolic age has ceased. But there is a similarity in that God still appoints men to fulfill a portion of His eternal decree by the proclamation of the glorious Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you can think of Romans 10, verse 15, verse A. And there the Apostle Paul writes, and how shall they preach? That is, how shall the Gospel ministers preach unless they are sent. And it's a remarkable testimony to God's forbearance and His grace that He continues to send forth men with this appointment of which we heard so much this morning. This appointment, not simply to give ten tips for a successful life this week, but men appointed to proclaim the glad tidings of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And so that is why we are here, you might say, because we have been appointed to be here as a Gospel minister with a appointed task. The Gospel minister doesn't uh, roll up into town, so to speak, and unload the U-Haul and put the books in the study and say, hmm, now I wonder what I should do now that I'm here. He he ought to know exactly what he ought to do. Uh, and we hear of this in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 16, where the Apostle Paul again says, for if i preach the gospel i have nothing to boast of for necessity is laid upon me notice that necessity was laid upon him it wasn't an option for the apostle paul and the faithful gospel minister it's not an option for them well what necessity is laid upon him paul says yes woe is me if i do not preach the gospel you see the gospel minister doesn't have an option he has to preach he has to proclaim the glad tidings of salvation because he is a man who has been appointed by God to do just that. To preach. And we don't have time in one evening to elaborate upon all that is involved in preaching, but to preach is not to offer suggestions. It's not to offer uh, philosophical statements. It's not to offer some little insight into some caveat of life. What is it to preach? Uh, The the word, of course, uh, to to preach ties back to what you would call a a town crier before the days of modern communication, before the days of email and of uh, all of the social media. A town crier would be a herald who would have been delegated by a a king or an emperor. Uh, And this man appointed by the king or the emperor would come into a town and his basic message would be the king is coming. Now prepare yourself for His arrival. And that I would present to you also as the task of the Gospel minister to say both to you the King has come in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ in His incarnation, and to proclaim to you that the King is coming in the culminating moment of human history. And although the world laughs, And although the skeptics jeer, the faithful Gospel ministers continue to cry out to make known to all who will listen, whether they gather together in a sanctuary or whether they just happen across a radio station or perhaps some social media live stream, to make known both far and wide to any who will hear, the King has come and the King is coming. That, in essence, I believe the Scripture faithfully presents as the task of the appointed instrument of the Gospel preacher. And in order to fill that appointment, a Gospel minister is prepared. You'll notice what the Apostle Paul says in verse 13. Now, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often planned to come to you, but was hindered until now. So there was this hindrance. He wanted to come, but he couldn't yet come. And part of why he couldn't come to Rome was that providence had to unfold itself in both his life and in the life of the church in Rome. And part of that providential unfolding was that the Apostle Paul was given a thorn in his flesh that we read about in 2 Corinthians 12. This thorn in his flesh that the Apostle Paul prayed three times with, we can imagine, fervency. Lord, remove this thorn in my flesh. But God in His providence said, no, my grace is sufficient for you. And oftentimes, Gospel ministers need to learn that lesson. Through a weakness perhaps within the flesh. Through a providential obstacle. A time of waiting. And oftentimes, the Christian needs to learn this lesson. Through a thorn in the flesh. and. It's absolutely remarkable. Yeah, we can speculate some think this thorn in the flesh was poor eyesight that the Apostle Paul had. Uh, but at the end of the day, we don't know exactly what this thorn in the flesh was. I believe that's purposeful because if we knew it was poor eyesight, uh, any one of us who didn't have poor eyesight would say, Well, well, I don't have a thorn in the flesh. Many a Christian walks with a thorn in their flesh. And the primary purpose of that thorn in the flesh and God's providence is to learn that God's grace is sufficient for them. Because it is in the moments of weakness that we are brought to lean most heavily upon the omnipotence of our God. It is the times in which we have to testify that we can do nothing that we most experientially learn nothing is impossible with God. And so Paul also was hindered from coming to Rome so that when he came to Rome, he could say, as much as is in me. Nothing of human power. Nothing of human eloquence. And as we live together as pastor and as congregation, you will soon learn I am not a man of eloquence. I've been known to make up words. I've been known to, I believe, announce 103A when it should have been 103E. I've been known to give the call to worship after the prayer of invocation. I do not come with human might. But the Apostle Paul would have said the same thing. But I do come with an eagerness. The word eagerness is a readiness. And, and and perhaps, children, you you know what it what it is to be eager, to be really excited about something. Maybe it's your favorite food that your mom has made. Maybe it's your birthday. And you know there's a present over there with your name on it. Maybe it's Christmas time. And you're eager. You're bouncing up and down. Maybe sometimes even literally. You just can't wait. That's something of what Paul is communicating. He just cannot wait to preach the Gospel of Jesus Christ also to the saints who are in Rome. He has this positive and enthusiastic inclination and desire. He wants to get to Rome so that he can make known the Person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that brings us into our second point, the content of the preaching of the Gospel. What is it that Paul is so eager you might say that is boiling up and bubbling up within him, overflowing within him. What is the message that he wants to arrive in Rome with? And for us also, again, if we apply this to our own context, what is it that we must make known in the midst of this congregation? And perhaps as opportunity allows, what is it that we would desire to make known in the city of Pala Iowa? And the surrounding communities, again, whether it be through airwaves or live stream or our personal daily interaction. Well, in our second point, the content of preaching, we first of all consider the explanation of the content. And I want to begin by stating very plainly and perhaps bluntly what the content of preaching is not. It is not a legalistic code. The Apostle Paul, as he gives his own biography, admits that he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. Concerning the law, blameless. That he was at the heart and center of the Israelite community. But then in Philippians, he says that he counts it all rubbish for Jesus Christ. So may we forever be kept from coming into Your midst just simply to proclaim some type of legalistic pharisaical code of external moralism. Paul was not eager to arrive in Rome to just lay out the groundwork for some facade of the exterior of a life that looked like it had it all together. He would have never ever preached a sermon entitled Your Best Life Now. Ten tips for a successful week. Nor do we plan to preach such a sermon. Because congregation, that's not the essence of the Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because as many of you can testify, if today is your best of life, well, what then happens to the hope of the glory of the new heaven and the new earth. The Apostle Paul would not have been eager to arrive in Rome to just simply encourage some type of traditionalism. And he certainly would not have desired to make known what many experts now call a therapeutic, moralistic deism. Just simply saying that there is a God in some type of deist way in the heavens looking down with smiles upon you, rubbing your back as you just experience whatever you experience. No, the mature understanding of the Gospel is centered upon the person of Jesus Christ. And I believe it's very important for us as a congregation because the Bible reminds us that we as Christians are. The light of the world. And the Apostle Peter challenges us to be ready to give an answer for anyone who asks for the reason for the hope that we have. And that is why we must sanctify the Lord God within our heart. And so I challenge myself even as I walked some of the sidewalks of the downtown district of the beautiful city of Palah, what if, What if someone stopped me and said, I see there's something different about you. I see that you have a hope that most people don't have. What is it? Tell me, what is the Gospel? And I ask you as I ask myself, would we be able to articulate in a winsome, concise manner what the Gospel is? And would we, in our answer to such a question begin with saying the Gospel is all about the person of Jesus Christ. Who He is. And you can think of the Gospel according to John and how John begins his account of the Gospel. Emphasizing, of course, the eternal deity of the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, That He's co-essential and co-equal and co-eternal with the Father and the Holy Spirit. But that then, underneath the amazing grace of God, that in the fullness of time, Jesus Christ was born of a woman, born under the law. That He took our real human nature with all of its weaknesses with the exception of sin, and that that was in a wonderful, supernatural way combined within one person. And it wouldn't be necessary, nor would it be wise, to just throw out the big theological terminology of speaking of the unipersonality of Christ underneath the hypostatic union. But would we be able to articulate that this is the heart of the Gospel? That Mary brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes. And that they called His name Jesus because as Matthew 1, verse 21 says, He will save His people from their sins. And so the content of the preaching must make known something of the person of Jesus Christ. His eternal deity, His real humanity in His one person, but that then this one person is the anointed Messiah, the anointed Savior, to save sinners from the wrath of God. And now here especially you can start to see how countercultural this message will be. Uh, to speak of the wrath of God even within the broader church can be extremely countercultural. But the Apostle Paul is going to move, as you well know, in Romans 2 and speak about the universality of sin and being under the condemnation of God. And so you cannot begin to explain the Gospel and the content of the Gospel apart from the reality of sin and apart from the condemnation that rests upon sinners for their sin. Now, it might not be popular. But that is never the question. The question always is, Is it biblical? Is it true that all mankind, apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, stands condemned? But that the Gospel says there is one mediator between God and man. The man Jesus Christ. And would we then say uh, to this hypothetical inquirer uh, on the sidewalk of Pella, Iowa, would we look at them in a winsome way but with a genuine concern for our fellow traveler to eternity. And would we say this is a faithful saying. Jesus Christ came to save sinners of whom I am chief. I present to you, brothers and sisters, that this is something of the content of the Gospel. Not only the person of Jesus Christ, but also then, of course, His work. And we've already spoken Something of that. And time hastens on. But his steps of humiliation, not of course just simply his incarnation, but that he suffered the wrath of God during the entirety of his life in an increasing intensity near the end of his life, especially when he cried out in his act of a substitutionary, atoning sacrifice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And although we don't understand the depths of His cry, nor the depths of the answer, we understand something of the answer. The Father forsook the Son and that the human nature experienced the interruption of that divine favor as He took the position, the place of the scapegoat of the Old Testament and as the wrath of God was poured out upon Him. And so this is what the Gospel minister ought to do. This is what the Gospel minister must do. Uh, And he must do it with an excitement to to make the Gospel come across as boring. Would have been foreign to Paul. For Paul to say, I I can't find anything else profitable to do. I think maybe I'll try my hand at the Gospel ministry. Or for Paul to say, "I, I don't really want to preach. I want to be a minister, but I don't want to preach. Would have been absolutely foreign to him. He says to the church in Rome, I'm overwhelmed with an eagerness to be in your midst, to make known who Jesus Christ is and what he has done. But not in a mere objective intellectually curious sort of a way, but also with an earnest call of the Gospel. And the Scripture is filled with examples and imperatives to issue this call of the Gospel. And our confessions echoing Scripture are clear of the necessity of the call of the Gospel. So it's not just explaining who Jesus Christ is and what He has done. It is then looking upon men, women, boys, girls, rich, poor. Those who are Jews and those who are Greeks and all of those in between. And then saying to them with an earnest love, but with an authoritative tone of a herald. Now, therefore, because this is who Christ is and because this is what Christ has done, repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And it burdens my heart that at times you can hear Gospel ministers preach without ever commanding men and women in a winsome way to repent and to believe. And so tonight, as you and I travel on the road to eternity, And again, as in God's providence, perhaps these words are heard by those who listen in on radio or a live stream. God comes and He has explained, yes, with much weakness, I understand. This is who Jesus Christ is. And this is what He has done. And now, you, I, young, old, male, female, are called to repent. And to believe and to place all of our trust in the all-sufficient work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Is this not what our Lord and Savior Himself did in His public ministry? But especially this is clear. And if I had the time and the intellectual ability uh, to pursue further studies I would love to work through the sermons and Acts. Because I believe just in my own reading through them that they all basically follow the same template. If, if you would have met the Apostle Peter or the Apostle Paul on his way to preach and, and asked Peter or Paul, what are you going to preach on today? I believe in essence they would have said, well, I'm going to preach on who Jesus Christ is. And I'm going to preach on what He has done. And then I'm going to call sinners to repentance and faith. Giving them the promise that if they repent and believe, there will be a full and free forgiveness of their sins. And that they are right with God, both for time and for eternity, so that their souls might be comforted. But also, I must issue a solemn warning uh, that if anyone hears these words and hardens their heart, they are underneath the condemnation of God. And I believe that on the day of Pentecost, That's what Peter preached in essence. And as Paul stood before the Roman authorities, I believe that that's what he preached in essence. This is who Jesus Christ is. This is what Jesus Christ has done. Now therefore, repent and believe. And if you do sincerely repent, there is a full and free forgiveness of sins. But if you harden your heart, be forewarned that the day of grace one day will be over. And then it will be the day of judgment, and you'll notice that this alludes to something of what we consider in our third point the power of the preaching of the gospel. And in here we begin to cast our eye beyond verse fifteen into verse sixteen and seventeen. You'll notice verse sixteen begins in our translation with the word for. It's a ground. Why is Paul so eager to preach the gospel in Rome? Also, for you might say because. Because I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. Now again, from the world's perspective, preaching is absolute foolishness. I can guarantee you that there are people who laugh at what we do here on a Sunday evening. A congregation gathers together and one man has a monologue from an antiquated book that science has disproved in so many ways and that the cultural experts now say is completely forgotten. Well, that is exactly what we do. We preach the Word because we believe it is the power of God unto salvation. Unto a comprehensive salvation for condemned sinners. The preaching of the Gospel is the power of God in that by the preaching of the Gospel, the Holy Spirit in the hearts of the elect produces underneath what we call the effectual call, plants the seed of regeneration within the depraved and dead heart so that we who once were dead in our sins and trespasses are raised up spiritually speaking and that new life, the life of the Lord Jesus Christ is given within our heart. And then underneath the same preaching of the gospel, uh, that seed of regeneration begins to, to blossom and bloom into the exercises of repentance and of faith. And that faith embraces and lays hold on the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and receives all of His benefits. And never forget that faith in that single act of laying hold of the Lord Jesus Christ receives all of the benefits of Christ. Now, following again Scripture, we make distinctions. We make distinctions between justification and sanctification and glorification. But let us also never forget, all of these benefits belong to the person who embraces Jesus Christ with a simple exercise of faith justification, there is this legal declaration, this forensic declaration in the words of Romans 5 verse 1, which are words which you can hold on to as a Christian on your very deathbed as you face the prospect of entering into eternity. You can say Romans 5 verse 1 is true. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ but then also sanctification. We are born again to a living hope. Washed. Cleansed. 1 Corinthians 6. The Corinthian church. And we need this powerful reminder in our day also. The church in Corinth was filled with former sexual adulterers, homosexuals, fornicators. But then there is that glorious text. Such were... Some of you were. But you experienced the power of God unto salvation that made a radical transformation in your very essential being. And you were transformed underneath this comprehensive salvation by the sovereign power of God. And so just to tease out the pastoral implication, what the church does not need is some trendy gimmick, some novel idea, Some hipster to hop up to the front and breathe in new energy to a congregation. What the church needs is men who are convinced of the power of God unto salvation through the preaching of the Gospel. Men who will in all of their weaknesses, but with all that is within them, make known to dying men and women, this is who Jesus Christ is. And this is what He has done. Now therefore, repent and believe. We need, you might say, the clear and passionate proclamation of Jesus Christ, mediatorial person, and his substitutionary work. Because think of what Jesus himself says in John 12, verse 32. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. Speaking, yes, of course, of his crucifixion, but then also the pronouncement of the reality of the crucifixion, and not only the crucifixion, but then also the resurrection and the ascension and the session and the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a comprehensive salvation, but we also ought to note that it is a particular salvation. Uh, There is something absolutely remarkable, uh, I, I believe, in the way that the Apostle Paul lays this out. And of course, the remarkable nature of how he lays this out is a result of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Uh, you'll notice in verse 16, uh, there is a comprehensiveness and yet a particularity. I am not ashamed of the Gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone. But now you notice my pause is artificial. Artificial. But we pause purposefully, to everyone, Jew, Gentile, rich, poor, old, young, but to everyone who believes. Universalism, of course, is ruled out, at least as it is popularly presented. But the gospel is to everyone who will believe. And one of the things, boys and girls, that over the years I've found absolutely remarkable. I have five children, and I confess, there were, and there are, many times that they come, especially when they're younger, and they say, Dad, Dad, Dad. And maybe, boys and girls, maybe you do this too. Maybe moms and dads, grandpas and grandmas, you can think. And and, and at times... When our kids say, Dad, 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 we say, wait, just stop. Give me a minute. I'm doing this. Think of the earthly ministry of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And I find it absolutely remarkable as He walked among us, whenever someone sincerely called out, Jesus, Son of David, He never said, away. He never said, I'm too busy today. Now you remember the disciples were often quick to say, little children, no, 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 no. He's far too busy today. But whether it was the outcast of society, a blind man, the narrative almost always says, Jesus, stop. In congregation, that ought to be a source of great encouragement to us who are poor and needy sinners. That if we sincerely cry out to Jesus Christ in faith and repentance, we can know for an absolute certainty that He will never say, away. Not today. Not for you. But that He will give grace upon grace even to the chief of sinners and that this grace includes an imputed righteousness. Over the last weeks, I've thought much about the alleged statement of the theologian, former theologian, J. Gresham Machen, as he was on his deathbed, and as he wrote back to one of his colleagues, and we don't have the time tonight. Lord willing, future weeks will give us the time to explain The imputation of the active and the passive obedience of Jesus Christ. I trust you know it well. The imputation that is the legal transfer of the righteousness of Christ into our account. But also then the transfer of our guilt onto Him. I believe it's perhaps most powerfully symbolized with the fact of Barabbas's. Horizontal crossbeam being laid upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ went outside the city. But as Machen laid on his deathbed, he indicated that his hope was bound up in the imputation of the act of obedience of Christ. And he said there's no hope without that. And those words are certainly true. There is no hope without. Whenever our time comes when we cross the Jordan, leaving behind this earthly existence and enter into the eternal realm, my friend, I testify to you tonight, it must be true for us that we cross that Jordan saying, I know who Jesus Christ is and I know what He has done. And that by faith there is this imputation that all of my guilt and all of my sin has been laid upon Him and has been dealt with once and for all when He authoritatively proclaimed it is finished. And that all of His righteousness is mine. So that God now looks upon me as if I had never sinned. And that in and of itself is absolutely remarkable and a source of joy and of but also that He looks upon me as if I have kept every single one of His commandments perfectly because of the Lord Jesus Christ. So congregation, this is something of the glorious gospel of salvation. This is what we desire to preach to ourselves and to you here at Covenant Reform Church in Pella. And so by God's grace, sustained by your prayers, may we in our community know nothing other than Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And may the Lord of salvation bless our feeble efforts and labors to the end that His name might be glorified, but also that His kingdom might be advanced. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we do stand humbly amazed at the glory of the gospel, the Gospel of the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, and so perhaps by way of reminder and renewal this evening we see something of the glory of the Son, or maybe for the first time spiritual eyes have been opened, Lord, we pray that both might be true, and that eternal fruit might be harvested for the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, so that His name might be glorified and that His work might be exalted. We love You as our Father and we desire to see Your kingdom come and Your will be done here on earth even as it is in heaven. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.